Hello. Welcome to the weekly No More Money University podcast. Let's go. I said no one. Okay. This week, it's a nice short weekly. I don't know if you can hear, I'm a bit sick, sound a bit nasally, but we still made it here. Um, on this weekly, on this week's weekly, try to say that quickly, Brittany Griner story, that's Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who's been detained in Russia, and a gentleman called Victor Boot, a.k.a. the Merchant of Death. Also on the weekly, Surviving Homelessness, um, this is from The Guardian, the idea of rough sleeping is what I want you to get from this. I think there's other facts, other interesting things that the story is about, which I'll speak to later, but rough sleeping and how, you know, even if we don't like to think think it or even imagine it, anyone or everyone is a few decisions away from homelessness. And, you know, the different factors, mental health, I don't know, bad luck, losing a job, etc., uh, the lies and fall of Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, basically the president. Everything that led up to it, he hired a guy called Chris Pincher, you know, um, Partygate. Comments he's made over his tenure. Oh, man. Super interesting. And it's like, it's good to know, or rather, it's good to have information about, you know, a democracy that would be perceived to be, you know, a better democracy than ours. But I think in this case, in South Africa, no one would be fired for throwing a party. Um, people have done worse here and still kept their jobs. So that's always interesting. The story from today explained from Vox, Ask for Jane. Just a great story, you know. When Roe v. Wade was, un- where it was overturned, there's so many different stories and reactions that came out of the U.S. And this is one that I thought was interesting. How women got abortions when it was still illegal so how this woman eleanor her name is not jane would help women get illegal abortions safely so listen to that prof g prof g podcast no malice no mercy no malice newsletter that he does i think by now it's like once a week or a few times a month um this one is george Hahn, pundit actor writer you know, reading um, one of the newsletters, one titled Notes for Work. I think work is an important part of all our lives, especially mine. And him being a professional role model who speaks quite candidly about his journey and sort of gives a roadmap, not necessarily the roadmap, but it's good to know directionals from, you know, people who've been in similar situations as you. So I thought I'd share that. And then Dave Chappelle on Artistry and Freedom. This is at the Duke Ellington School. It recently dropped on Netflix. I like how he speaks about his ability. I like how he speaks about his craft. I like how he speaks about um, expression. And, you know, I just wanted, whoops, I wanted to share that with everyone. And, um, yeah, so it's the weekly, as usual, Happy to have you here. We're not checking analytics. We're going to build something here. Um, all the stories have an interesting in. And yeah, these are the things that have been happening. Thanks for joining us. Run it. Out.
Well, a lot of this process has been very opaque. We don't know the full details of what the two sides might be offering or demanding. But we got a very interesting hint a few weeks ago in Russian media, which quoted sources saying that the Russian government was interested in the possibility of, in effect, trading Griner for a man named Victor Boot. Victor Boot, like the famous Russian arms dealer? Exactly. Rarely does the U.S. government want anyone more than it wanted this man. He is one of the most infamous arms dealers of all time. U.S. government officials say Boot became the world's most notorious arms dealer by fueling civil wars around the world. He may not be familiar to younger listeners, but about 15, 20 years ago, he was virtually a household name. He, in fact, had a nickname the Merchant of Death, and was the basis for a Nicolas Cage character in a Hollywood movie about a global arms dealer. I was an equal opportunity Merchant of Death. I supplied every army but the Salvation Army. And Boot, for better or worse, really warranted the attention. He was a man who, you know, very skillfully, if cynically, exploited the collapse of the Soviet Union. According to the U.S. indictment, Boot had a unique selling point when it came to weapons trafficking. A fleet of cargo airplanes capable of transporting weapons and military equipment anytime, anywhere. And made countless millions of dollars peddling his weapons to conflict zones around the world, fueling terrible civil wars and arming dictators and war criminals, particularly in Africa. Afghanistan, Colombia, Rwanda, Congo. So really, Victor Boot is sort of the quintessential arms entrepreneur. Ultimately, he was ensnared in a United States federal sting operation and arrested for offering to sell weapons to what turned out to be undercover U.S. federal agents. They said that they were members of a Colombian rebel group and that they wanted weapons partly for the purpose of killing Americans. That, of course, is an extremely grave offense. And in 2011, Boot was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in federal prison where he is now. Would the U.S. government ever go for this? I mean, it's not like it's a soldier being exchanged for a soldier, right? This is a famous basketball player. and Right. So Brittany Griner's story has been in the news for a while. She's been, in, she's been detained since like Feb. Um, I'm open to correction there. But the new twist in the story is obviously that, you know, they, the Russians want to swap, you know, the merchant of death for Brittany Griner. By the way, she was caught with cannabis oil. Look, when you travel to places, you kind of have to know the consequences. It's like, I don't know what part of Asia, I think it's Thailand, where chewing gum is like you get like a death sentence or you can go to jail. Again, open to correction. But the principle of what I'm trying to speak about is the extremities that other countries will go to. She was obviously also detained around Feb, which is when the war in Ukraine started or the war between Ukraine and Russia started. So... With America offering support to Ukraine, you can understand how Brittany Griner can become a pawn 
in this game. Um, yeah, listen to the story. I think it's one that I'm following quite closely. I think, um, you know, you put in that situation, you would want your country to come and get you. I think there's been criticism against the Biden administration about how they're approaching it. But I think when you want to get someone back in a situation like this, you do want to use back channel sort of um, avenues and not make too much noise. Because the idea is, you know, the Russians want to show the world that like, they have some sort of bargaining power or rather that they can use different things in this world in the same way sanctions have been put on, you know, uh, Russia in terms of the economy. Um, so y'all, please listen to this story. How Brittany Griner became a political pawn. Um, this is New York Times Daily. Really good story, really well produced, really well researched. Let's run it up. I was 26. I was living in a small flat in Greater Manchester and it was right at the end of my degree. And for months I'd been abusing alcohol and living quite a hermetic lifestyle. And for lots of complicated reasons I ended up in a race and then one day I just decided to leave my flat and take a tent and live on a bridal path. It was 2013 when Danny Lavelle found himself alone, homeless and facing his first night sleeping rough. It was early evening I could hear the wind rustling through the trees and raindrops bouncing lightly off my nylon roof. I didn't have many things with me, just a change of clothes and my phone. And I was just quite anaesthetized to the whole thing, really. I just thought something like this was always going to happen to me. Life was coming hard at Danny. A succession of painful events meant that his mental health had been seriously deteriorating for months. The insane thing about it is that I still had my flat. I could have gone back and stayed in my flat that night, but for whatever reason, I think it was my paranoia, I was really worried about bailiffs coming to the house and taking my stuff. And not just taking my stuff, but seeing the state of the place because it was a real bombsite. Unwashed clothes everywhere, discarded food containers, beer bottles. You know, it was a disgrace. So I just felt humiliated and paranoid and, yeah... The shame he felt was overwhelming. But looking back now, Danny knows there were so many factors outside of his control that made him especially vulnerable to becoming homeless. At the time, I just felt like I was a failure, like I'd done this to myself. I still can't understand it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I treat it kind of like a crime scene. Mm. Because if you view it in isolation, it just looks like I was acting really irresponsibly and crazy. But... What I wanted to do is actually zoom out, if you like, and look at what led to me ending up in that situation. It kind of raised questions about how much free will you actually have, because I don't think I would have planned this <laughs> if I had the chance. Danny is now an award-winning journalist and the author of the book, Down and Out, Surviving the Homelessness Crisis. You're such a good story, right? And I also, 
I'm glad I played it from the intro as opposed to like a snippet from from the things he said. But there is this thing that they keep talking about called rough sleeping. And that terminology keeps coming up in this story, rough sleeping. And, you know, the different um, factors that could lead to you being homeless. I think for me, while this story stood up, about a year or two, we worked with a nonprofit or rather helped to create a nonprofit. Um whose goal was to sort of give back, but specifically to homelessness. I think like a lot of people you'll find will give back in spaces where they can relate. So maybe not necessarily being homeless, but have felt a sense of like, you know, worry, you know, about their surroundings or where they stay and, you know, the stability of, you know, sort of that surrounding, if you like. Um Really good story. I think the guy speaks candidly. He gets quite emotional. He speaks of uh, the people he met while he was rough sleeping, where he had to rough sleep sometimes, friends, making friends, um, losing friends. You know, there's a story he tells of one of the guys he used to, you know, know in those days that passes away. Um, Yeah, a really good story. I think, like, you know, my only question to you listening, if you are, is are you getting to your bills? You know, are you, is there anything worrying you? Are there debt collectors constantly calling? Do you answer unknown numbers? Do you answer the telemarketers' numbers? <laughs> um, I think everyone is on a, on a different journey, but I think we're, what we must never forget, and this is something that we sort of learned whilst we worked you know, in that space with the NGO or NPO, was more times your one or two uh, decisions from homelessness or being in a situation where the factors that impact your life have changed and now you're getting closer to desperation, if you like. So good story. It's titled Surviving Britain's Homelessness Crisis from The Guardian, Today in Focus. Um, have a good afternoon everybody good afternoon it thank you thank you it is clearly now the will of the parliamentary conservative party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister Anyone who was expecting a sort of voice-cracking, tearful, Theresa May-style departure will have been disappointed. Uh, He he was absolutely as bullish and confident and Boris-like as he's always been. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us... I think it was one of those moments where you thought, does this man really have a kind of interior life? A lot of people say there really isn't much and that he's quite hollow on the inside. And this was oddly impersonal in that respect. It was just another performance. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after... It's kind of trademark, wasn't it? I mean, there was a lot of bluster and he was still very confident, but managing to just shove some jabs and digs in where he could... It did include those digs at his colleagues. No uh, contrition, 
No word even of acknowledgement of what it was that had driven him out. It was just that the Conservative Party had had some uh, fit of hysteria. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And the, a, a herd mentality uh, had sort of gripped the Conservative Party and they had stampeded to get rid of him. In other words, really disparaging his former colleagues, suggesting they were just blowing with the wind, really. And, my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things coming. After just under three years in power, the support of Johnson's party collapsed within 24 hours. And yesterday, Johnson was forced to resign, leaving the Tory party in a leadership crisis and Johnson still hoping to cling on until the autumn with a new cabinet. It left many people wondering if this was always the way a Boris Johnson premiership would implode. Our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Just good. Just well produced. Let's go. Um, so this is the lies and fall of Boris Johnson. I think like if you haven't followed the timeline, um, Theresa May uh, gets voted out. He comes in around the time of Brexit. Um, famously, his, <laughs> well, I'll say his claim to fame, but the famous mistakes he's made was hiring Chris Pincher. The guy's name's Chris Pincher. <laughs> and knowing that Chris Pincher had sexual allegations against him, um, what else did he do? Oh, yes, Partygate. Um, that was the party during uh, the lockdowns and COVID. It's interesting just to listen to, you know, British politics and learn about the Tory party. So I guess two-party system as well, more liberal and a conservative party. Um, I've heard about the Tories and just like songs, you know, Dave, Skepta, um, Stormzy, anyone from London, um, just talking about the Tories. So yeah, really great story, really well produced, gives you all the angles. And I think... Like I said, it's good to see, you know, what, you know, he talks about we have a Darwinian system and we'll get another leader. And I think, yeah, that's the one thing I just really was interested in following the story, how the first world or rather how a better democracy than ours deals with dishonesty, um, misleading the public, um, etc. And almost like a North Star for us where, like I can safely say, that nobody that threw a party was going to lose their job. I think during COVID, there was a situation in South Africa with one of the ministers having a party, and I think she was just suspended for some weeks, and she got a fine, a ministerial fine. Um, but you're a really great story. Run it up, listen to it, enjoy it. I mean, take it all in, and also just the commentary from different sides about the person you know you always think politics or presidents are like the smartest people not necessarily sometimes it's about you know playing the political game 
as opposed to necessarily being the best for the job. Boris Johnson makes me feel like a British Donald Trump. But again, you know, a friend of mine said something important. Donald Trump did a lot of bad, but he also put a spotlight on a lot of things that could still change. Um, and I'll leave it right there. Oh, that's a beautiful piece of equipment. Thank you. A, the first thing you need to know about this Jane is that her name isn't actually Jane. It's Eleanor. I'm Eleanor Oliver. I live in northwest Washington. And um, what more do you want to know about me? But Eleanor is one of the Janes, this group of women that helped other women get safe, illegal abortions in Chicago in the late 1960s and early 70s before Roe v. Wade. And last Friday, the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe almost 50 years later, I showed up at her apartment to talk. What did you make of it when you heard it? I'm still stewing over it. But, you know, women are still going to have abortions. That's not going to change anything. That's not going to change a damn thing. Women are still going to have abortions, except they won't have the security of knowing that it will be safe, that it'll be medically safe, socially safe, you know, that the person providing the abortion won't take advantage of them in other ways, which was one of the major things years ago. I asked Eleanor to tell me about years ago. Well, my husband was doing graduate work at the University of Chicago, and I was looking for something to do. It was 1968, and a lot of stuff was going on. There were anti-war demonstrations on college campuses and in cities from Los Angeles to Washington. NBC News has learned the National Space Agency has decided the next Apollo flight will go to the moon. It'll not land, but a crew of three men inside their spacecraft will circle the moon about 60 miles from it and then return to the Earth. That power means dignity. Means we're going to walk side by side with you or through you. We're going to be with dignity and integrity. We don't want any more than you have, and we're not going to accept any less than you have. That's my power. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. Ladies and gentlemen, we've kept the air on because we've heard an alarming report that Robert Kennedy was shot in that ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. We had a consciousness-raising group, a group of women, and one of the things we got really hung up on was abortion. And we went from consciousness-raising to helping other women find safe, legal, illegal, actually, affordable abortions. Safe and affordable in contrast to the status quo. Most of the young women of childbearing age have no idea what it was like to be pressured into having sex and then getting pregnant and then having no way of dealing with the pregnancy. I asked Eleanor how these women got abortions back in the day, before Roe v. Wade. Well, you pick out the people you, you know that you think 
might have connections that are kind of a little bit savvy, that know people that maybe you wouldn't possibly know because you were just a college kid, and you you just ask. You say, do you know any place where I can have an abortion, where I can get an abortion? I need, I need an abortion. You would probably go to somebody's apartment or a motel, and it certainly wouldn't be in the chicest part of town unless you were paying for the chicest part of town. Then you would go to a nice doctor's office, and even then, I mean, he might have a white coat on, and he might have an MD shield on his door. He might have the wall hung with degrees from medical schools, but you had, you weren't going to you weren't going to check out to see whether he really was an MD or not. You wanted that. You wanted that abortion, and and he would give it to you right there in the office. As Eleanor tells it, this was kind of the best case scenario. You could go to the mob and try and get an abortion. They might put you in touch with a shady doctor. They might put you in touch with a good doctor. The experience would vary greatly based on how much money you had in your pocket, and if you wanted the Cadillac abortion. The price was steep. Anywhere from between $500 and $1,000 in 1968. Some of them were being sold a bill of goods. Many of them. So, this lady, her name's Eleanor. God bless this lady. Can I start by saying women should be in charge of their own bodies, not the government? Simple. Um, really great story. Ask for Jane. Basically, just about how this woman created with her husband a call line that would help these women that were looking for abortions find a, a, a safe way to do it illegally, which is crazy, right? Um, and you would call the number and you'd ask for Jane. And if um, her husband answered, for example, so it was their home telephone number. Um, they would know that somebody needed help with an abortion. And if you ask for another name or even just one of the regular names like Eleanor or her husband's name, then they'd know at least, you know, that it was um, a call about them or for them. Imagine. Can you imagine that? You know, the social stigma, um, perceptions by others, general safety, people taking advantage because you need a service that's, illegal um and yeah i think in the in the time where we see roe v wade uh overturned um this is an interesting story to hear because there's always going to be a way i think she says it herself women are still going to get abortions um yeah so it was interesting to hear um also just hear about protests and how they approached you know, protesting this or helping people. Ask for Jane. That's from Today Explain Vox. Sean, really good. Enjoy. I'm Scott Galloway, and this is No Mercy, No Malice. There are few things in life that are more important than building economic security for yourself and for your family. In order to get there, work. Notes on Work, as read by George Hahn. Work has been the most important thing in my life. It's my identity and has been the greatest source of reward. 
Yes, my kids mean more to me now, but for 35 years, the majority of my waking hours, effort, skills, and even relationships have been focused on work. Is that dysfunctional or American? The answer is yes. Initially, my focus on work was driven by women. Specifically, I wanted to impress my mom and to gain access to a broader selection of mates. In college, as we barreled toward graduation, I registered that fairly unimpressive men received a disproportionate amount of attention from women if they drove a BMW or could host us at their parents' house in Palm Springs, Laguna Niguel, or Aspen. I secured a job at Morgan Stanley by lying about my grades and having the good fortune to interview with a guy who had also rode crew and said, Oarsmen get an automatic offer as you're willing to kill yourself in pursuit of a goal. Okay, then. My analyst class at Morgan Stanley had 89 kids. I was, generously, the 88th best analyst. Number 89 was, no joke, escorted out of 1251 Avenue of the Americas by the FBI and convicted of insider trading. My focus on work turned serious when my mom got sick, as I knew I would need to take care of her. Then it became an obsession when my first child was born. The nurses in the delivery room were more worried about me than the newborn or the woman doing all the work. Pro tip, good health care is a function of the nurses, not the doc. I could not stand and I was so nauseous and faint. I was processing badly the realization that four decades of selfishness and failures remaining private had come to an end. For me, being a dad meant, first and foremost, work, specifically providing economic security for the science experiment brandishing a blue wristband marked with my surname. The first two years of his life, I was barely there. The same with his younger brother. While their mom needed my support, I found no evidence babies need their dad. Yes, they recognized me and smiled, as they did with the dog, nanny, and toaster oven. Properly motivated, I turned to work. I'm not alone in looking back on life defined by work. Our work constitutes our economy, it occupies most of our time, and it determines our friendships, mates, geography, and health and welfare. English is supposed to be the most nuanced language, with more words to provide more texture to communicate. Yet it falls short on the word work, as the concept covers a surface area that the single syllable can't encapsulate. Note, I'm especially proud of that last sentence. We take this four-letter word for granted, but work is always changing, and it's entering a period of particularly rapid evolution, driven by a pandemic, by technological advancement, and by global economic shifts. It's worth considering what we talk about when we talk about work. So who works? Likely the most significant social change of the 20th century was the large-scale entry of women into the workforce. In 1900, around 10% of women worked outside the home, and virtually no married women did. Today, 56% of women are employed versus 68% of men. We're still figuring out how to implement this change to the social order. Major policy debates over pre-K, child tax credits, and school lunches are the aftershocks of these tectonic plates shifting. This period also saw battles over the access or lack thereof to work based on race, sexual orientation, and national origin. These questions are settled. Even as the white patriarchy desperately yelps for relevance, the old order has lost. We're now fighting over the terms of surrender. Good thing. Work is always changing, though 
And the next turn of the evolutionary wheel will be the lengthening of the working career. Ever older workers. Americans turning 65 today can expect to live 18 more years from men to 20 years. So notes on work, really good. Obviously the context is America. Um, take that with a pinch of salt. But, you know, being a person, what am I now? 31 this year. Being a person in my 30s um, and, you know, just sort of following a career path, the word work has been a big one for me as well in my life and figuring out what that means, my role inside of that world, um, how to grow, how to get some sort of closure from it one day when, when you know, I'm too old to be doing it. But, you know, Prof G has always been here. He does this thing on his uh, podcast called Office Hours. So similar to university where on a Monday you could see your lecture and ask questions about, you know, themes and class and chapters and just extra information, what you can read, how to approach your next few decisions or life steps in terms of school or career. So this one is good. Notes on work. No malice. No fear. No, no fear. No malice. And... Um, or oh, no mercy, no malice, apologies. And notes on work, Prof G. And he's done a couple of these where George Hahn is reading. Love George Hahn. Follow him online. Uh, writer, pundit, I think actor. He's a lot of things. Just great gentleman. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, no mercy, no malice, notes on work. It's really beautiful. It's also so candid. He speaks about his family, having children, trying to make his mother proud, you know, having a humble beginning and, you know, from an early age just remembering and always knowing that he needed financial security and it was something he was going to go after. Um, I don't know what triggers or sparks your motivation, but this was a good one for me. Um, glad I shared it. And the last time I came back, after the closer, when the kids were mad at me, <laughs> I got to tell you, that was quite the day. All the kids were screaming and yelling. I remember I said to the kids, I go, well, OK, well, what do you guys think I did wrong? And a line formed. These kids said everything about gender and this and that and the other, but they didn't say anything about art. And this is my biggest gripe with this whole controversy with the closer, that you cannot report on an artist's work and remove artistic nuance from his words. It would be like if you were reading a newspaper and they say, man, shot in the face by a six-foot rabbit, expected to survive, you'd be like, oh my God. And they never tell you it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> I took a lot of cold shots in show business. And I got to tell you, as the years go on, you feel the shots less and less as just the business is what you say. But that one, that day, boy, that day they hurt me. When I heard those talking points coming out of these children's faces that really, sincerely 
hurt me because I know those kids didn't come up with those words. I've heard those words before. <laughs> the more you say I can't say something, the more urgent it is for me to say it. And it has nothing to do with what you're saying I can't say. It has everything to do with my right, my freedom of artistic expression that is valuable to me, that is not separate from me. It's worth protecting for me, and it's worth protecting for everyone else who endeavors in our noble, noble professions. And these kids, and these kids didn't understand that they were instruments, instruments of oppression. And I didn't get mad at them. The kids, the freshmen, they're not ready yet. They don't know. What made me mad, and I am this petty. <laughs> I ain't saying names. One of the kids' mother went on Fox News. And she used to be a student here. So, <clears throat> I've played this way too long, but I'm gonna chop it up. If you're listening to it, you're just listening to the part maybe from where he says, um, where he speaks about artistic expression and why it's so important. But yeah, I was listening to this and I thought to myself, I don't even have better words to, to, to really land the point. You don't have to agree with him or me. Um, but, you know, I've always seen myself as an artist myself i think it's just the way in which i express the art you know my br- my paintbrush my canvas my muse etc um but a lot of the things he says i can relate to and a lot of the things and the 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 pain the trauma the fear imposter syndrome etc which is making art is important i think art's going to save the world I think I don't want to do too much take away from the words. Um, yeah, just wow. Just wow. And I think on our journeys, what I also do like about what he speaks about, he speaks about teachers. I'm going to shout out some teachers here quickly. Mrs. Eberbach, that was my history teacher in high school, German. Rula Hatting, who was... Um, one of my marketing lecturers, she really taught me how to think about ideas and, and let ideas flow. Um, yeah, just a moment for teachers, really, man. I'm glad to have had the teachers I've had, the passion they had. You know, teachers don't make that much money, but here we are. And, you know, I also like how he speaks about his ability and skill. One of our mentors said to us, it's it's okay to be confident and just not conceited. So, you know, as I grow, I also hope to speak about the things that I'm good at and what makes me strong, you know, as a fact and with a lot of conviction and confidence. Um, I never feel bad about that, you know. Sacrificed a lot to be in this position, sacrificed a lot for the opportunity, so take it in. Yeah, so that was... Dave Chappelle, what's in the name? Check it out on Netflix or wherever you bootleg.
Yo, so that's the end of the weekly. Thank you so much for joining us, me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what was what was this theme about, or what was this episode about, really? character right i was listening to something and this is what i wrote down i can't remember who said it and if these are the exact words but this is what i'm gonna leave you with this week this episode is called um character is destiny he was undone by his character flaws character is destiny his fate is foretold by the person he is remember that thank you so much for listening see you next week